To feel truly loved, we must believe we're accepted for who we are. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy shit shows! Welcome aboard for any new listeners. I'm Andrea. I am the queen of the shit show, and I'm coming to you live for the first time from my podcast studio. We're still in the closet, folks, but we are not sitting on the floor hunched over like Quasimodo. I am sitting in a chair I have a little table in here. I even have um, uh, uh, this mattress topper, like this foam mattress topper draped against the wall for, you know, good acoustics. We're looking real damn legit, folks. It only took me 99 episodes to get here. Uh, On that note, next week is episode 100. How the hell did we get here? How the hell... Did that happen? And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. When I started this, my initial plan was to just do six episodes, maybe eight episodes, but I just kept on chugging away. Is that it? Chugging away? Yeah, that's right. Chugging chugging away. Uh, Plugging away. Um, And that is because of of all of y'all. Truly. And as I've said before, this isn't, you know, my podcast. I think this is all of our podcast. I just am the one (laughs) doing the talking. Um, So I don't know what I want to do for the episode next week. I was thinking about that. One idea is to go through the episodes and take out my favorite clips from different episodes. But that sounds like a lot of work, (laughs) y'all. It sounds like a lot of work. Another idea was to do some sort of a live episode. I'm not quite sure how I would do that. I guess it could be like on YouTube or Instagram. But what do you think about that? Or do you have any other ideas? Give me give me your ideas on ideas for episode 100 if you got them. So today I am joined by Robin Goebel. She is a psychotherapist and we are talking about the light, breezy, joyous, uh, uplifting topic of toxic shame. So let's chat a little bit about toxic shame in case anyone's newer to the topic. If you go back to my third episode, that was um, my story, my toxic shame story where cherry, (laughs) sorry, it's rough in here, folks. I mean, I, I was on the floor for 98 episodes hunched over like Quasimodo. What else do you expect out of me? Um, so yes, episode three. That's my my toxic shame story. So toxic shame. Toxic shame is internalized shame. So when we internalize an emotion, it no longer functions as an emotion and becomes one's identity. So guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about something that you've done shame, healthy shame, is feeling bad about yourself because of something that you've done. And toxic shame is just feeling bad about yourself just because, (laughs) just because. So whereas healthy shame is a feeling, 
toxic shame. It is a state of being. And this is something that we all share. It talks about in the Big Red book how shame and abandonment, those are the two common threads between us all, no matter what uh, our childhoods look like, the specific details, what happened to us. We all share this toxic shame. And it is a result of having our authentic self rejected as kids in some form or fashion. And it just sits there underneath the surface looking for any opportunity to make ourselves feel like shit about ourselves. And it doesn't even require somebody else to do something or for something to happen to us to bring up these feelings we can bring up this deep sense of unworthiness and inadequacy and shame through our thoughts alone. And that is because the shame is deeply embedded in our nervous system and in our personalities and in our beliefs and our thoughts and our fears. And with that being the case, this is going to take some time for, for us to, you know, to, to work through uh, I hate to break it to you folks. <laughs> you know, I'm five or five years, six years into this journey, and I'm still uh, peeling those layers of the onion. And I want to share a recent experience that I had. So a couple weeks ago, I went out to California. So Tiffany, friend of the pod, we all know who she is. Um, she invited me to her a mastermind event. So Tiffany's a business coach. And she was having this live, you know, two-day event for her uh, people in her mastermind to come out. And she rented this amazing house in Hollywood. And on the first day when she was kind of doing like the kickoff meeting, I don't know what you say, like introductions, talking about the first event of the workshop. I was sitting there in in the room with all these women who all had uh, various businesses and the shame came up. Inner critic came up and was saying things like, you're such a loser. Like, look at all of these women with these successful businesses and you don't deserve to be here. You shouldn't be here. You don't have the success that all of these people have. You'll never be as successful as these people. And part of working through our shame is being able to recognize when it comes up. And I was able to catch myself and look at the reality of the situation and and flip that script. Look where you are, Andrea. You started this podcast less than two years ago, all by yourself, having no experience. Look what you've built And look where you are sitting here right now because of the podcast and the community that you created that has brought all of these people into your life. And you're sitting here right now because of that. And there was even one other person there. Erin was there, another girl that's in our uh, girl, lady. What do you want to be called, Erin? Also in the Patreon, in the Shit Show community. She was there too because Tiffany met her through my community. What my head was telling me, there are no facts that support this belief that I was so much less than all of these other women there. 
And so I'm just peeling the next layer of this shame and the inner child work that I've been doing over the past month or so that I've been sharing about. It's really allowing me to tap into that shame in a way that I haven't been able to before. And I think it's just because it's time. It's safe. Stuff comes up when we are ready to deal with it, when we are ready to confront it. So I feel like some big shifts are happening. <laughs> I, I feel it. And I'm just going to keep on keeping on talk to, talking to y'all shit shows about it too. Thank you for loving me and supporting me and all the things. So let's get on with the interview. But first, let's talk about why you need to damn the join Patreon. Okay, this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. We also have a WhatsApp chat that is popping all the damn time. We got, you know, people sharing funny memes. We got people who are struggling that need support. Uh, we have pictures of our animals. We talk about condiments a lot. <laughs> this, this group has everything. And it's a, a place for you where you can tap into this heavy shit in a way that doesn't seem as heavy. We don't heal alone. What we are dealing with is relational trauma. And relational trauma is healed through safe relationships. And this is a community that can provide that to you. So how about you damn the join Patreon? Patreon.com slash adult child. Next, uh, give me a little follow on the Insta on the TikTok at adult child pod. Last but not least, give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. All right, y'all. Well, we are joined by Robin Goble. She is the host of the Parenting After Trauma podcast. She is a psychotherapist that talks a lot about all of the shit that us shit shows deal with. Welcome. Mm, thank you. Would you consider yourself an adult child? It's not something I talk about a lot. But I think it's pretty impossible to do this work in the way that I do it without having a really lived, felt sense of what um, it is to have had those experiences as a young one. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, again, it's not really part of my brand to talk about it in that way because I'm a parenting expert. But 
Yeah. Do you, do you talk about your, your upbringing at all? Not, uh, not really as part of my brand per se. Okay. Well, what about like between me and you right now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. So tell me, like, would you consider your upbringing dysfunctional and what did that look like? Oh, um, well, if I'm going to notice, first of all, just like the sense that arises, I was like, Ooh, we're going to, do, we're going to just go there. Huh? I come in hot. Yeah. There's elements of it that I think are actually pretty hard to put into words. And I think that's actually probably what makes it so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was just in different ways, you know, some chaos, some unpredictability, yet not all of that was true by any means. You know, there's lots of, you know, mo- you know lots and lots of moments of, of goodness. And especially now that I'm older and I can done a lot of work to process everything and can actually see so much more clearly the parts that were good and were attuned and were present. Um, but I think the easiest thing to say would just be lots of confusion, lots of chaos, lots of dysregulation that left. Yeah. I just keep the words scared, just kind of chaos and confusion. Was there a particular aha moment that you had in adulthood where you were able to see ways in which your upbringing impacted you that you hadn't been aware of? I don't know that that I've ever had a significant like aha moment, kind of in general. Like I don't feel like I've been in 47,000 million hours of therapy. (laughs) and I don't really relate to that experience of aha moment per se, but just these like really slow unfoldings of new awareness, new understandings, new compassion like for myself and um that I can remember moments of being like no way that doesn't describe me at all you know like <laughs> like when a therapist suggested the word codependent a really long time ago I was like what <laughs> I was so offended like that, that doesn't describe me at all um I remember those sort of moments but I think everything else has just been this kind of slow gradual pace I think that's all my nervous system could really navigate. That sounds pretty good. Then a big slap in the face. I mean, sometimes I wish that were true. Like I kind of long for that aha moment. Sometimes I look at my current challenges still and wish I could have that aha moment and Mm -hmm. be done with all of it. But yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Except for like, we're never all done with it. (laughs) I know. You know, you just mentioned that, you know, having both the chaos and confusion, but also having a lot of moments of, um, you know, of joy and happiness. And I was just talking about this with my therapist. I said, I just got off of therapy. Uh, and, And the thing for me that is so difficult. So I grew up in an alcoholic home. My mom was an alcoholic. My dad was a emotionally unavailable workaholic. But the thing that, um, cause I was talking with her just about, uh, um, some, some messages that I've recently received from my inner child, um, in particular, good things never work out. 
Things always go to shit. You always fuck it up. You always self-sabotage. And what's hard for me is that I, my parents were never, ever verbally abusive to me. My parents Mm -hmm. never told me that I was a piece of shit or that I wasn't smart or that I wasn't capable. Like I would say the majority of the people listening to this podcast and the majority of the people that are in my community, they did have those direct things said to them. And I didn't. Yeah. But, and so it was so insidious, Mm -hmm. right? And it was like the continual promises by my mom that she would stop drinking and she wouldn't. And that, you know, and just one example, but that like goes to show that it's like, you're, you're clearly unworthy because if you were, then I would stop drinking. Yeah. To a kid, that's absolutely the, the story that we craft around that. And I'm not, I'm not really a big believer in having to kind of put in a hierarchy, like who had it worse. No, it's all the same. I think it's all the same. Totally. There is something that's kind of unique. I wouldn't call it worse, which kind of unique about the lack of overtness with, um, you know, the ver- like what verbal abuse would feel. So there's a clear story, right? Like, well, of course I feel like I'm a terrible person because somebody told me I was a terrible person over and over and over again, or the same with physical abuse or sexual, like it, the story makes a little bit more sense. And I have a similar experience where that was not my experience as a kid. I know, but in fact, if anything, the opposite happened. I was the kind of revered child who was doing everything correct. And so had so much confusion then in my like young adulthood of why do I feel this bad? Like, why do I walk through the world thinking that my very existence hurts other people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I must be exaggerating this. I must be kind of histrionic. I must be, there's, you know, obviously there's something very wrong with me because nothing that bad ever happened. So there's this extra layer that's confusing. Where we shame ourselves, right? I shouldn't, yeah. I didn't have it that bad, so I shouldn't be this fucked up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, I was reading in, um, in um in Pete Walker's book from Surviving to Thriving, there was this one because one of the things that I've been trying to work through a lot is self-sabotage behaviors, procrastination. And there's this one thing uh, he says, and especially tragic developmental arrest that afflicts many survivors is the loss of their willpower and self-motivation. Many dysfunctional parents react destructively to their child's budding sense of initiative. And so for me... The way that that showed up was not, again, it wasn't direct. It was, you know, my mom's alcoholism, but it wasn't like, you know what? When, so then I started acting out at like 12 mm-hmm. and they would dangle these um, like, and, and, and when I started to act out, my mom stopped drinking and my parents stopped fighting, right? Like that worked in fixing the family. But they would dangle these carrots at me. Like, if you don't drink or if you do this or you do that, like, we'll give you this, like, you know, reward. 
Um, and so it's like, there was this, uh, there was this, um, facade of like believing in me in them thinking that I could do the right thing. But then simultaneously, it's like, I didn't have a choice because the pain was so deep and the shame was so deep that my only choice was to numb out. There was never even a question as to whether I would abide by whatever it was so that I could get that reward because my sole purpose in life had become numbing out, not feeling, you know? And so that's how the destructively uh, reacting to their child's sense of a budding sense of initiative showed up for me. But again, very, very, very insidious. Yes. I'm working right now in a workshop for play therapists about toxic shame in the play therapy room and how it shows up and how it presents and and even what the origins of it are, because it is very confusing, right? And it often doesn't show up like, you know, especially in kids. Sometimes I think adults have just different capacities to kind of articulate what their inner world is. Um, but kids don't show up in the play therapy room and, and say, um, I, I hate myself. Um, I, I, I really shouldn't even exist. And it feels as though my very existence hurts people. And they don't show up with those words. And so the way that it does show up. Yeah, this is something that I, we haven't discussed on the podcast. I would love to dive into that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it shows up in, in like exactly the words that I already used, chaos and confusion. And often the therapist is feeling confused and isn't has no idea what's happening. There's going to be a sense of like, like, what on earth is even going on? I can't make any sense of this. There can be the sense of like, there's um, even some danger like and like literal danger. Like I've been hurt as a play therapist. I've had black eyes. I've been bit. I've had and like I'm, I'm talking about like an outpatient play therapist, not in like a acute psychiatric. Can you describe what play therapy is? Oh, yeah. So play therapy is a it's pretty specific modality. I mean, it's a modality of therapy that utilizes play as an expressive arts for kind of the primary healing medium. So while it certainly is not only for kids, we see play therapy used like predominantly in children. I have a little bit broader definition of play and play therapy in that, again, it's just an expressive modality where we're not using words, but we might be using metaphor or symbolic play that could look like puppets, dolls. Um, Sometimes it's a much more experiential play, like we're doing sword fights uh, kind of play. And... Sometimes it can look a little bit more like the kind of play we might think about in very, very young children, um, tossing balls back and forth, um, just silly back and forth, patty cake kind of play. Those are super um, important developmental experiences. Uh, for little kids developing brain and for their attachment experiences, their experiences of, of the, their sense of self. Um, and of course, a lot of kids miss that. And so to help kind of almost in some ways fill in some of the holes, the gaps of development, as well as to provide them with that expressive modality, similar to what we think about adults in therapy, right? There's this, this opportunity 
to kind of take what's on the inside and put it on the outside and kind of look at it and see it and then shift it around, have somebody else witness it. It's a very similar experience for kids, just occurs in kind of this more nonverbal modality of play. And are you able to, um, would it be more so something used as, um, as like treatment versus are you able to make like assessments or I don't want to say like diagnoses, but basically like, is it used as a way to try to get an understanding of what my, the child might be suffering from or with, or. I think both. I I personally practice from the perspective of really believing the, my job isn't necessarily to interpret the play. My job is to provide an opportunity for whatever this child needs. Okay. And to really trust them, which means I spend the less time kind of trying to assess it or make meaning out of it myself. Um, I mean, I think it's a very normal human thing to try to make meaning out of things that can't completely separate myself from, especially mm-hmm. when things are super chaotic and confusing. That's one of the things I'm working on in this toxic shame workshop is teaching these therapists, like, what is the neurobiology of toxic shame? Because I want them to understand kind of the story, the narrative of toxic shame. So they have just some sort of framework to look at, like when they see these behaviors, that tends to help us as therapists stay a little bit more like regulated, a little bit more present when like big, huge chaotic things are happening. So without question, like there's story that's being told through the play. And I really want to hear the story. It's not exactly my job to make meaning out of the story though. Does that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. What, so what would be some examples of the ways in which toxic shame does show up in behavior, like in kids. So you talk about chaos and confusion, but what would that look yeah. like? I tend to pay a ton of attention to what's happening for me. And really, I, that's those are some of my markers is like, am I feeling confused? Did I just have a moment of like, what on earth is even going on here? That tends to be a potential kind of marker that what the child is expressing or showing me is some of their earliest experiences of toxic shame because it's all embedded like in the same neural network. So for, for truly, I kind of track my own experience of shame, um, feeling like something just really happened out of left field, like the feeling of like the rug has just been ripped out from under me. Like, what? oh my gosh, what the heck? That's a kind of clue for me. Um, true chaos like literal chaos of, and in a playroom, the, the the amount of chaos that can happen in like a play therapist's office is pretty intense. Um, toys everywhere, you know, art supplies, paint. It's common for the play therapists to have sand trays. So, so like all this, like literally we're talking about like dumping, uh-huh. right? Shelves clearing, um, body chaos. You know, kids are kind of all over the room. I can remember kids crawling into my windowsill. I can remember trying to get kids off of the roof of their parents' car. Kids who've locked me out of my own office. Kids who've locked themselves. <laughs> like, just, yeah. 
And so the what happens when you're a professional at your office and a child locks you out of your own office. Mm-hmm. Like imagine the sensations that come up for that therapist. Shame, humiliation, confusion. What just happened here? Like I'm supposed to be in charge here. How did this happen? How did I let this, ch-? you know, like these are the kinds of things because therapists are perfectly human. And so these are the sorts of very human reactions that come up for us. Mm-hmm. And that kind of begins us on the trailhead of, oh, I wonder if what this child is bringing into the office is bringing into me. I wonder if part of the story that they really need me to witness is toxic shame. Mm-hmm. And would you define toxic shame as essentially just internalized shame, the belief that we are shame? no longer feeling it, but believing that we are it. Yeah. Yes. And you know, certainly there's, I, I talk about, and I, I work with kids and so I have lots of, you know, kid friendly metaphors. And I talk um, when I'm teaching parents a lot, a lot about the owl brain and the watchdog brain and the possum brain. So the owl brain is kind of self-reflective and can kind of see things, right? There is a moment and maybe you can, you can relate to this as an adult that there's moments when you can see the feeling of shame, you have just a little distance from it. And you're like, wow, I am feeling an enormous amount of shame take over me right now. And then there's moments when you don't see it at all because you're just completely consumed by the sense of there's something terribly wrong with me. There's like different, but we all have different kind of narratives. Like a lot of mine can be like, I hurt people just by existing. Mm. And it, feels totally true. Just like, it doesn't feel like there's any space at all for that to be not true. And the physiology of toxic shame is less even about being told you're a terrible person and more about what happens physiologically in our nervous system in experiences of chronic misattunement, Mm. chronic needs not being met, chronically like not being seen and soothed. So there isn't kind of like what we said at the very beginning, there isn't, uh, there can be, but there isn't always this narrative of you are a bad person. You're a bad kid. But the physiological experience that happens for the developing infant when they have a need and the need goes is ignored isn't met or the dysregulation is heightened on purpose right like maybe the parent comes with anger instead of with soothing that the physiological experience then that happens in response to that is actually the physi- the same physiological sensation of shame. So that so many of us can relate to the physiological sensation of shame as being like this kind of like your head tips down, right? And we kind of get this C-shape in our body and we kind of want to hide ourselves, right? And that is, it's the same experience with, when there's a need and there's this reach out and this 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 attempt at attachment and connection, please see me. 
that goes completely unanswered, completely unseen, what happens is the same physiological the same physiological thing happens as the 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 shutdown and then the the sagging. The dorsal vagal for if we want to really get physiology, you know, the dorsal vagal break the dorsal vagal break gets thrown and we kind of collapse into this state of shame. Then we go get older and we have moments of like normal childhood shame, right? Like Oh, this is so cliche. The proverbial like child who like runs out into the middle of the road and the mm-hmm. parents like, no, stop it. You know, like reacts huge because it's real scary. Mm-hmm. Right. So the child feels shamed. There's a sense of I, I'm such a bad kid. Now they learn that that intense break sensation means I'm a bad kid. Oh, oh, but wait, when my brain was developing, I had that intense break sensation a lot because I was left all alone and I wasn't soothed and I wasn't tended to. I must be really, really bad. Mm. Now, of course, little kids aren't like going through that cognitively, but that's essentially Mm. Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on when John Bradshaw talks about this moment where you know, shame is internalized and we either take the shameless acting in versus the shameful acting out. I mean, for me, there was, there is like a very clear point in time where I can see that happened for me to Mm -hmm. where I really took the shameful acting out route. But what has been your um, experience and practice with that? And do you view that really as a marker of when shame truly is internalized? Uh, The way I conceptualize behavior is to think about it through the lens of what's happening in the autonomic nervous system and the kind of collapsing in experiences more of what Dr. Porges would call this dorsal vagal break collapse. Whereas a lot of act, quote unquote acting out behaviors has a lot of energy behind it, right? The energy behind acting out and going out and doing something, there's energy to that. There's some sympathetic arousal, some sympathetic activation versus this, this dorsal vagal break that tends to kind of bring us into ourselves. And there's a, the opposite's almost happening. There's like a lack of energy mm-hmm. that's happening. So how I conceptualize that is in two ways. One is, the acting out energy is actually protective of feeling the internal, the shame experience. The shame experience resembles this. I'm about, I'm like an annihilation sense. Whereas this acting out experience has more vitality to it. And that's protective. Like this vitality experience feels better than I'm at risk of annihilation. Mm. And so it's protective of going into this sense of annihilation. Even though it just produces even more shame. <laughs> totally. Totally. I mean, that's the devastation of of so many of our mm. protective behaviors is that in the moment, they make perfect sense. It's like the best choice in that moment. And so often they are 
perpetuating the pain, you know, the belief, I really am a terrible person or, you know, that, that core shame there is just being almost validated mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. And I had no idea. Like yeah. I, on a conscious level, like this is, you know, in early adulthood, if you had asked, like, I would have told you that I thought highly of myself, <laughs> you oh, know, totally. yeah. but my yeah. actions like clearly showed that I specifically in romantic relationships that I thought very, very, very little of myself, you know, what about like working through toxic shame as far as, um, what healing from that looks like if it is something that is caught earlier on in childhood, like how does healing that toxic shame differ from healing toxic shame in adulthood? That's a, wonderful thing to be super curious about. I mean, there's without question, you know, the, the, the brain has so much opportunity for, I mean, healing is just an easy way to, to say what's happening. Um, you know, the younger we are and the more, you know, the sooner we can create new experiences for kids without question, the better as far as their long-term outcomes, what's really happening in their brain, you know, how quickly can we help kids develop new, essentially new neural pathways. There's a lot more opportunity for them to be strengthened. It's really, it just gets harder when we're adults um, Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. Those neural pathways are really, really, really strong. And we've, adults have developed a lot of, like some adults have developed like extremely complicated protective systems um, that, you know, there's 12 layers before we would get at like the core shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My therapist always says that that really is the, the, the bottom layer that, you know, it, yeah. it takes a while to, to eventually get there. Absolutely. With kids, they just frankly haven't had enough time to develop such sophisticated um, and intense protective systems. And so the actual experience of shame in a way is a little rawer. We could say it's a little, it, it, yeah, let's just say that it's a little rawer. And that makes it a little simpler for the neural net that we want to act, we have to activate in some way the neural net of shame for it to open up and unlock and have the opportunity to reconsolidate. And what do you mean by that for anybody listening? The neural net of shame. So the, yeah, there's a memory. I mean, everything is memory. Everything is memory. So we have, when shame comes alive in our body, what is happening is old, 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 old memory networks of shame, like patterns of neural firings mm-hmm. from a long, 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 long time ago are activating in the here and now. They're activating so intensely and with certain specifications that make the activation not feel like a memory. Like mm-hmm. it, we don't have this feeling of shame. We're like, oh man, when I was two years old, I sure felt so shamed. <laughs> yeah. That feeling of shame I'm having right now, that's nothing to do with my grown-up self. That's just everything to do with this bad thing that happened when I was two. That doesn't happen. 
And part of why it's not happening is because how that memory network is being activated is we're not getting the parts that tell us this is a memory. Mm-hmm. So it just feels like this is happening right now. Right now, I'm a terrible, terrible person. For me, it was like, I'm going to die. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And for me, especially when I'm working with adults, kids do sometimes express, I'm going to die. We see that in their play. Adults actually can use the words and eventually can say something like, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like it will kill me. I remember saying to my therapist, I'm like, I know this doesn't make sense, but it feels like it will kill me. I will die Mm -hmm. if we look at that. And she's like, no, it makes perfect sense to me. So I do think that sense of I'm going to die, that kind of annihilation sense, very likely has to do with shame. They tend to go together. And it's not, I know, I know, I know in my body because I have felt it myself. It feels true. Mm -hmm. It actually, though, isn't true. And so from a physiological perspective, what we understand about essentially like about why therapy works is this thing called memory reconsolidation theory. And we can allow the experience in a way to like become a memory so that if it gets activated in the here and now, there is a felt sense of like that thing happened and it was bad, but I didn't die from it and I'm not going to die from remembering it now. Mm-hmm. And for that to happen, this thing called memory, like the, the memory network has to open up it has to be activated. We have to have that felt sense of shame kind of come up for us. And the way that it then reconsolidates is if the, the memory network receives something new, something unexpected. The memory network of shame is expecting what? Shame. Lots of dysregulation. They're expecting whoever they're with to like be not present, to be ignoring them, to be scary, yeah, to them. be, yeah. you, know, what, you know, whatever it was uh, that Lord caused shame in the first place. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the way we kind of reconsolidate that memory network is when the expectation, when there's a mismatch in the expectation. Mm-hmm. That's really hard, though. So if I go back to, I mean, that's hard in real life, like in real personal relationships, super hard, because when people are acting bad, which is how people are usually acting when they're kind of living out their shame, they're usually acting in ways that make other people not really want to be that nice to them. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Totally. So they're, the, the experience is being confirmed. The shame experience is being confirmed, right? But if we take it into that therapy room where it's technically a little easier for the therapist who isn't the friend or the spouse or the partner, right? To offer up this quote-unquote disconfirming experience. Mm-hmm. Right? So when I have kids who 
um, you know, take a bucket of sand and dump stand, sand and dump it over my head or fling it at me or lock me out of my own office or run out the front door and climb on their parents' car and jump on it. All of these things have happened. Mm-hmm. I'm a human being. I mean, I'm a therapist, but I'm still human, right? Like there is a part of me that wants to be like, what are you doing? Stop it. Don't throw sand. Get off your parents' car. Right. Mm-hmm. Plus probably their parents are watching. Mm-hmm. They're in the waiting room or they were in the session in the first place. And, you know, that can come up for me as a therapist, like, oh my gosh, these people are watching me. I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, all those kinds of things. Which just puts me much more likely of responding right to this child's behavior in, ex- in, in exactly the way that they're expecting. Mm-hmm. Right? Like my own dysregulation, my own fear, thinking more about myself than them. Right? Mm-hmm. All of that is is confirming, really, their shame. Mm-hmm. So there's no magic intervention for shame. Like there's no play therapy tool or technique anybody's ever taught me, except presence, safety, co-regulation, like seeing the behavior as the shame. And not just a bad, out-of-control kid. Mm, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a boundary or whatever, whatever, whatever. The session ended. I mean, a lot of play therapists are taught to end sessions when kids are acting like this. And so I found there, I have just found there to be so much power and helping people or make sense of and organize in their own minds the chaos and confusion that they're seeing. Mm-hmm. So that they can take a breath, right? And be like, oh, this is shame. Okay. I need to respond with safety. I need to respond with presence. I need to respond with a regulated self. So then play there. It's supposed to be like, but what am I actually supposed to do? Like, what do I actually say? And I'm like, who even knows what you're supposed to say? What do you say when the child's on top of their parent's car jumping up and down? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Whatever you say say it from a place of I'm I see you I see your shame I know that that's not you Mm. like I know that you aren't a bad kid Mm. and we're here and I'm gonna stay with you here in this place I will not leave you here alone where were you (laughs) I needed you Robin (laughs) I was in a lot of therapy. <laughs> I never figured out what the fuck was wrong with me. <laughs> well, that that I, truly was my, I th- that was a, a huge shaming, toxic shame experience for me. It was when I got sent to therapy at nine years old because of my separation anxiety. And the therapist was not informed that my mom was an alcoholic and that my parents fought all the time, you know? <laughs> right, right. I have such a, I hope, desire, passion, love, I don't know, to help other therapists be able to just see through the behavior better. And there's such a shortage. Oh, there's such a shortage. Hmm. One thing that I was thinking about as far as my toxic shame went was 
one thing that one huge thing that really helped me to start breaking down the barriers of my toxic shame was the realization that I was suffering from complex PTSD, like in dating, because I could not like the fact that I would get into these relationships with such horrible people, not, well, let's not say horrible people, sick people. Cause I was a sick person myself, yeah. but like the fact that I would get so hijacked is me immediately as I started dating them that I would literally like date somebody for like a few weeks and have it not work out and feel like I was going to fucking die and feeling, knowing cognitively that that's ridiculous. Right. But having no idea for so long that like what I was experiencing was a trauma response or when I would be in relationships and I would go to work and I didn't understand why other people could like go to work and check out and not, Mm -hmm. and like, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was thinking about it in particular. I had this internship. I was, I think I was like 24, 25 and I was in this relationship with the, it was like six months, like hell hole. And I could not, I mean, I couldn't focus for a damn second. And it was all part of my journey. Like, you know, I didn't get that job because I was supposed to move to San Francisco because I was supposed to, you know, date two alcoholics named Brian back to back and then find my therapist and all this stuff. But like, yeah, just the shame of not realizing that I really had no control over what I was thinking and what I was feeling and how I was behaving. That was so huge for me. Cause you know, some people would be like, Oh, that's so like, there would almost be like shame and like realizing that you have PTSD. But for me, it was like such a relief to know that like, okay, like I really actually don't have a choice or I didn't have a choice at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime we can make sense of something that feels like it doesn't make any sense. And also we can do it in a way that, again, there's no shame or blame or judgment. Like we're we're not a good person or a bad person because we got PTSD. It's just what happens. It's what the brain. I think we're an an interesting person. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) No kidding. That is very true. That is very true. And if we can, that the stuff I so often talk about, if we can begin the journey to be able to seeing our shame instead of just being it. And for most people, not for everybody, but for most people, there is an element of understanding what happened in the first place that caused this, like understanding this, like, oh, like there's nothing wrong with me. This is a totally reasonable reaction Mm. to my circumstances. Not only was it reasonable, it's actually brilliant. Like my nervous system and my protective system did exactly what it needed to do for me to be the most okay Mm -hmm. that was possible. And every time I would do something to kind of like recreate the experiences that led to the trauma in the first place, right? Because we're walking through the world constantly recreating Mm -hmm. our trauma constantly. Every time I did that, I did that so purposefully you give my mind the opportunity to have this disconfirming experience that I talked about. Every time I did that, I just hoped somebody would see me for who I really was. Somebody would respond to me in the way I needed. 
Mm. And man, was I tenacious and continuing to do that. Yeah. Continue to do that. (laughs) Yeah, it does totally (laughs) suck. It really sucks. Mm. What about the connection between toxic shame and um, like attachment styles? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't like to ever talk in absolutes. I don't necessarily think anything's ever 100%. But generally speaking, I'm going to look at that disorganized attachment when I'm looking at the kind of experience of toxic shame. Because the, the experiences that cause disorganized attachment are the same experiences that cause toxic shame. I think it can be discouraging when people say there's, or when people hear like, you know, if you got disorganized attachment style, you're screwed. And I don't think mm-hmm. that's the case, but can you kind Mm-mm. of discuss that? <laughs> well, it kind of just what we are talked about with memory reconsolidation theory. I mean, our attachment styles are our memory networks. Mm-hmm. So they're memory networks of what we can, of what our experience have been in the past that are helping us understand what to expect in the future in relationship. It's mm-hmm. just memory. Memory absolutely can change. Uh, there's excellent proof about how memory changes. Attachment styles are very stable, yet they absolutely can change. Like both of those things are true. What's tricky is that we're the way that humans work is that we kind of we set people up to interact with us to respond to us to behave towards us in the way that we expect them to Mm -hmm. so like when my pockets of disorganization are online i'm behaving in a way that is essentially setting other people up to respond to me Mm -hmm. in a disorganizing way Mm -hmm. which is one of the benefits of therapy is that theoretically speaking therapists are more equipped to respond to us differently than the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Than just regular people. It's a it's a big expectation of someone to kind of look past the behavior and respond in this. Yeah, and especially because we're attracting way. people into our life that are just going to reaffirm those faulty totally. beliefs that we hold. <laughs> totally. We're all just, re- yeah, there's a lot of attraction to each other, which again is brilliant. What we're doing is setting up the opportunity for healing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it works. A lot of times. A lot of the time. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get to a point where you're like in a fucking shitload of pain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I really, really think a couple things about attachment. One, that um, if we can shift the way we look at attachment as, you know, insecure attachment, including disorganized attachment is bad. Like we have to shift away from that. Mm-hmm. And even if we just start doing it cognitively, it's not bad. It's brilliant. Our attachment adaptations are brilliant. They were exactly what we needed to do at the time. Yes, they have great costs. There's just no denying that, but both can be true. Totally both can be true. So we kind of start from that place of just re-look, reframing attachment and also recognizing that the neurobiology of shame is embedded into the circumstances that led to insecure attachment. Mm. So when we think about insecure attachment, even in ourselves, or we think about, oh, I have disorganized attachment, quote unquote, 
which I don't really look at it that way, but shame arises because shame is embedded in those neural networks. Mm -hmm. So I also don't think attachment is near as finite as most of us are taught that it is. Again, attachment is just, attachment is just pockets of memory. Most of us have lots of different pockets of memory about relationship. We have secure experiences and therefore secure memory, you know, secure, I would say secure pockets of attachment. I absolutely have secure pockets of attachment. I would assume that you do as well because we do get through the world, right? Like, I don't really know you. I assume you're figuring out a way to pay your bills and kind of like do life in some way, shape, or form. Ryan. Yeah, totally. And so what that tells me is there is some, there's something in the nervous system that does have some like solidness to it. That's super duper hopeful. Mm -hmm. I assume not not every experience in your past that would be what creates your memory networks or have all been disorganizing. Not every single one. You know that there have been some that would maybe be what we'd call anxious, insecure anxious or insecure avoidant. Or, and again, you actually can be both disorganized and secure. Disorganization as a classification and attachment always has another classification in the research. And some people are disorganized and secure. So without being too Pollyanna, I think the science tells us that there is so much hope. So, so, so much hope. And the ability for like our memory networks to shift and change. Well, I might blow your mind with some research that I'm conducting but I think that there is a, um, a an attachment condiment correlation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, tell me. Anxious attachers love their fucking condiments. Avoidance, mm -hmm. maybe a little mustard, maybe nothing at all. I have been asking this question. I've maybe got, you know, a couple hundred people. It's like 90% true. So I'm uh -huh. wondering, can we maybe come up with a new healing technique that is incorporating totally. condiments. We could. I'm a condiment warrior. Hardcore anxious, oh. hardcore condiment core. I also love condiments. Love, love, love condiments. All, all the con. I love my food to be wet and messy. I sell merch that says condiment whore, just letting you know. I love that. I might have to get some. So I have pretty equal pockets, actually, of all. Like when I've done an uh, adult attachment interview, I have, I'm one, it's not a huge category, but some folks have like pretty even mm -hmm. all four. Mm -hmm. I happen to be one of those people. Spreading the wealth. Uh, yeah. So, and I absolutely, I do, I love, love, love condiments. I love all, What's your favorite? all of them. Mm, it really kind of depends. I mean. Gun to the head. Love, what's your favorite condiment? You can only use one for the rest of your life. Probably ketchup. Yeah, of course. That I also shall, sell merch that says ketchup is king because that's I, the answer. I also really love sugar though, and so mm -hmm. ketchup is just a way to have you know dip your fries in sugar. But uh, but I can also say as a play therapist that I don't know that we'd <laughs> necessarily be inventing a new way of assessment. Oh come on. Assessment. <laughs> 
because there is something that we notice when kids are very messy with their play or do lots of mixing or are essentially squeezing the condiments everywhere and then like bathing in them. <laughs> yeah. If we have condiments in the play therapy room. Okay. There's so you're some, saying there's some, there's some supporting research to support my theory. For sure. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I have a lot of parents that are listening that, you know, have just recently discovered that they're an adult child and that perhaps, you know, they have impacted their kids in, um, some not so great ways. What are some subtle signs that, um, a child, you know, you talked about what, what you see in play therapy, but as a parent at home or mm-hmm. what are some subtle clues that somebody's child could be suffering from toxic shame? Mm-hmm. I think I would be looking at clues, cues and clues that felt like really intense emotional dysregulation, um, intense behavior or reactions that felt like it didn't match. Right. And that, to be clear, this is not diagnostic. There are a lot of reasons why kids Mm -hmm. could have these behaviors, including just their own, like different neurodivergence. Right. So, but if I'm going to start to get kind of curious, um, you know, intense emotional dysregulation, difficulty with like the kind of like the serve and return of relationship, meaning, you know, if you have a kid who seems to be a little delayed, you know, maybe you have an eight year old who who seems to have more like three year old play skills, right? And isn't really playing you know a game or um taking turns or knowing that how their friend is feeling in play is important mm-hmm. right? all of these are um you know relationship skills and help us with um understanding what's happening inside of other people and um and then the serve and return of relationships so if i if i have a kid who's like really developmentally delayed and that Certainly when kids are saying things like, I hate my, I hate me. I wish I would die. Um, A lot of times when I hear kids say words like, I wish I was dead. I want to die. I certainly want to be aware of and assess for, you know, suicidality and the risk there. But I often see those words less about in, in little kids less about I want to do something to kill myself and more about, again, that kind of like annihilation sense, like that sense inside of me of disappearing, right? And it can kind of get evoked and through those kinds of words. Um, Play that feels real, again, like the chaos and confusion, so when I have parents that come in and they just, and they, they do say this, so I, the vast majority of the kids that I work with have experienced severe abuse and neglect in early childhood. Um, and their parents describe them as, that the name of my book is Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors. And the word baffling feels really accurate for these parents. Like their behavior doesn't make any sense. 
And the way I respond to them feels like it doesn't make any sense. Like I feel like I become a different person. I don't know who this person is who's reacting to my child's behavior in this way. Those are some kind of clues that there may be some of, I would just call it kind of like this neurobiology of trauma, toxic stress, toxic shame, disorganized attachment, those kinds of things. How have you approached, or I'm sure that you've come across this quite often, but when you, similar to my experience, where you see that a child is being scapegoated and being deemed the identified patient, like what are those conversations with parents sound like, look like? It's obviously super tricky um, because as a therapist, now I am in this place of um, two, essentially kind of two different clients, mm-hmm. right? And it's hard to have two clients, right? There's this child who needs a lot of advocacy while also recognizing that how I approach it with the grown-ups has to be done in a way that is more most likely to keep this family involved in treatment. Yeah. Because it doesn't really do the kid any good for me to like come in super guns a blazing with the families and have that family not trust me and then not continue with treatment. And so this is really, really hard. And I work really hard to see the adults in the same way that I see the kids. That, um, this is really hard when the child is my identified, you know, client, but that mm-hmm. parents who hurt their kids are really, really hurting people. It doesn't make a lot. It doesn't make sense to hurt other people. And so when people are hurting other people, I have some cues and clues about their own like neurobiology and their own past experiences and families who are scapegoating or there's an identified patient. Like that's part, usually a part of their history the somehow part of their own family legacy. And so nothing changes without compassion. Nothing changes without, without compassion. And so I have to work really hard to, and that's sometimes not that hard, but it depends on what's happening. But, you know, to hold the parents and a lot of compassion as well. And then that what I would just, I would say set boundaries, which can look like talking explicitly about what's happening and what I'm seeing and doing it with a lot of compassion while also a lot of, and this needs to stop. We, we really need to work together to figure out how we can shift this for your child. I mean, are you having experiences where parents are like flat out lying about what is actually going on in the home? Yes. And without question, that is absolutely happening in the field of like child therapy. That's not exactly what's happening most of the time. And with the majority of my population, the most I've, my experience has largely been with kids who are in adoptive families. Okay. Um, That doesn't make them immune to not being honest with me 
usually the lack of honesty is not um, deliberate. Like it's not this intentional lie as opposed to kind of just the own way their own protective system is set up mm-hmm. about like what kind of occurs to them mm-hmm. to tell me. Um, so that doesn't happen with me specifically too terribly often. How did you end up going down that route where that with the like adopted kids, how did that become your thing? I think like a lot of us like, sort of just sort of stumbled into a niche because of, you know, circumstances and things that were available to me immediately upon graduation. And is like, oh, I knew this person and this was their area of expertise. And so I, they were my mentor. And then I always wanted to work with kids with histories. Well, I wouldn't have said this back then. We didn't have this language. But with histories of complex trauma has always been what I've wanted to do. Um, And then I just happened to stumble into some mentors who were really experienced in the adoption world. And the vast majority of kids who have been adopted from foster care. I mean, that's not even actually what I'm saying is doesn't even make sense. All of the kids who have been adopted from foster care have had experiences that would lead to, you know, complex trauma. So that just became what I did. I don't know. I would love to have you back on to talk about that. Cause that's something that I haven't really dove into. Oh, um, yeah. I definitely had some people reach out and want to hear more about that. So it's yeah, absolutely a ton about, um, okay. What do you want to shell promote, sell, whatever, go for a lady. Hmm. Well, I have my own podcast, like you said at the beginning, and it is a podcast for parents. And also I have tons and tons and tons of professionals who listen to it that um, helps them with their work with kids. Uh, I have a book coming out in September, Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, Brain Body Sensory Strategies That Really Work. That's the end of the book. Um, That's it. Just the title. Yeah, that's just the that's just the title. We're putting all those words on the cover. <laughs> all all of them. <laughs> um I do a ton of teaching and, and training and both for parents directly. I go to, you know, do parent conferences and also for therapists. I have an online community for parents of kids with what I say big baffling behavior, vulnerable nervous systems. Most of them have have histories of trauma and toxic stress, though not all. Um, to support parents in that way. It's called the club. The clear hmm And I have a year-long training program for professionals who work with the parents. So I don't train professionals to be play therapists anymore. I really, really love working with parents and supporting them and helping them like decode their kids' behaviors and teaching the parents how to be for their kids, you know, what their kids need. So basically you're doing nothing is what you're telling me. Like you have nothing going on. It's basically what I just just like sit sit around all day and yeah. (laughs) Well, I loved this. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this has been fun. It's been great to meet you. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you. As always, I know that you did. As always, if you didn't, get help. (laughs) Get help regardless, okay? If you're tuning into this shit, that's probably a pretty good indicator that you need some help. Uh, Thanks again to Robin. She was amazing. We, I didn't know what I was going to talk to her about. I typically just 
like to see where conversations go naturally. And I really enjoyed the path that that conversation took. Um, I don't have anything else that's notable to share with you. Oh, next week, we're talking religious trauma and abuse. And I will see you then for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super raw. So excited. You got to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I Just let it all go.